Thank you, Daphna. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ilan Boshin, and I'm a board member of the YU Medical Ethics Society. Our first speaker this morning is Dr. Avi Schroeder. Dr. Schroeder earned his PhD from Ben-Gurion University and then completed his postdoctoral studies at MIT. Dr. Schroeder is currently a professor of chemical and biomedical engineering at the Technion, where he heads the laboratory for targeted drug delivery and personalized medicine technologies. His lab employs innovative medical technologies in an effort to improve the lives of those suffering from neurodegenerative diseases and metastatic cancers, as well as to reduce food waste and advance crop protection in agricultural settings. Dr. Schroeder has extensive experience in nanotechnology and personalized medical technologies, holds multiple patents, and has received numerous international innovation awards. It is my honor and pleasure to introduce Dr. Schroeder. Hi, guys. It's a great to uh, hear from Israel, from the Technion. Um, can you hear me well? Yes, we can hear you well, Dr. Schroeder. Okay. Okay, great. Um, so I'm speaking to you. And actually, I'm uh, uh, here uh, together with the students from the Technion uh, who are also listening to, uh, to, this, uh, to this talk. Uh, um, and, uh, and just like giving like an overview, so maybe you can see uh, here in the classroom, uh, we're just uh, setting up some of the te uh, technological aspects of the of the talk too. Uh, but I'll, I'll first start by speaking to uh, to your team in uh, in New York. Uh, so it's really great uh, being here together. And uh, from what I understood is that this course actually is at the interface of ethics, business, and uh, and technology. Is that uh, correct? Yes. Okay, very good. So, uh, um, yeah, so what I wanted to just uh, um, uh, two examples where we had uh, uh, how we came about technologies that we invented and bring them uh, then into the clinic. Uh, and, and what I, I would say is that uh, it happened a lot due to uh, something that we were missing during the, the time of uh, COVID is really more interaction between, uh, between people. And uh, uh, so I'll share my slides with you. And, and I actually wanted to start with what, uh, what inspired me uh, when I came to, uh, uh, to study chemical engineering. So I'm a chemical engineer by training. Can you see my... I think you can see them in a in a presentation mode, unfortunately. Um, let me just. Uh, hello. Yeah, you're good. We can see. I, I hope this is better. In the in the Ben Gurion University, they uh, uh, can affect or impact the treatment cancer treatment. Uh, and uh, the first thing uh, he did is uh, take uh, take nanoparticles. 100 nanometer liposomes, th those are the names of the nanoparticles, 
Uh, and just to get a sense of the size of these, uh, of these systems that each particle here is about one one thousandth the width of a hair on our head. And, uh, and what he did is he loaded these nanoparticles with a contrast agent uh, inside, and then uh, he injected them intravenously to the uh, patient, so the into the arm, and he then looked where they distributed in the body. And, and amazingly, these nanoparticles were distributing or targeting uh, different tumors in, uh, in different patients. So on the top left-hand corner of uh, your screen, Underneath a, a patient is a, is a patient uh, with a, a breast cancer and metastasis. Right hand side, you can know cancer and metastasis in the exemplified. A uh, and explained why it was uh, so uh, so efficacious in treating uh, in treating cancer. Um, now, uh, just to to, uh, to to put us uh, on score, so on the top of your screen, you can actually see Doxel, which is here, which is the first nanotechnology to be approved by the U.S. FDA for treating uh, for treating cancer. And uh, what it is is a and ovarian cancer. So nanotechnology actually, uh, or the first nanomedicine uh, uh, came out of Israel in order for treating drug. But since then, really this field has gone through a huge evolution, a lot of work that's being done all around the world uh, for, treating, uh, for treating different diseases. But we do have this local uh, joy that, uh, uh, that many, many patients actually are enjoying, uh, are enjoying this technology. Uh, and, and these technologies actually moved a lot forward with combinations of drugs, and other types of medications, all the way to the COVID vaccine that I assume many of you actually have a, uh, uh, a... Nanotechnology actually allows treating diseases that were incurable uh, until today, such as liver diseases in which uh, proteins misfold inside the liver. And these systems uh, uh, today are used widely uh, a, a day in, day out a, a, in, in the clinic. Uh, and uh, uh, the, I think the best example of uh, how important nanotechnology is uh, really in, uh, in treating uh, came in the past uh, couple of years when we saw that the COVID vaccines actually leveraged understanding we had in the field of nanotechnology and the ability of nanoparticles to penetrate To, uh, uh, to induce a therapeutic, uh, a therapeutic response. But, but the story really starts, I think, a couple years uh, earlier. And uh, um, what you can see in front of you for people uh, who are less familiar with nanotechnology are actually uh, nanoparticles. These are the nanoparticles of one of the COVID vaccines uh, with the RNA inside of it. You can't see the RNA, but you can actually see very nicely the spheres of the nanoparticles uh, into which the, uh, the drugs are, are loaded and the medicine actually uh, elicits its, uh, its response. So what we have
therapeutic, uh, the therapeutic response. But uh, um, if we look at uh, if we look at uh, uh, if we look at uh, how these things or how these technologies actually move from academia into the industry, uh, which is I think one of the focuses of this uh, of this uh, course that, that you're doing both in the U.S. and also here in Israel, our students are very interested in entrepreneurship. Um, I think it all starts from our teachers, our mentors. And, and I was very, very fortunate to have, uh, to have uh, uh, three uh, amazing mentors uh, for my PhD. Uh, on the right-hand side, top right, right and, uh, in addition to being uh, uh, a very good scientist, he's also a member of the U.S. National Academy of Engineering, as an Israeli, being a foreign member there is pretty, uh, pretty unique. But he also works a lot with industry. Uh, and so he actually speaks both languages. And, uh, and I'll touch on the ethics aspect in just one moment. Uh, the second on the left-hand side is uh, Professor Chezi Berenholtz. Chezi looks just like this. Uh, he just celebrated uh, his 81st birthday. And he's still very, very active. Uh, uh, and he invented Doxel, that first nanoparticle that had an anti-cancer agent More than 300,000 uh, ovarian breast cancer patients annually. And from a business perspective, uh, uh, for those interested, this, this drug sells for almost $1 billion a year still till today. So it's still a blockbuster, even though it's a rather old uh, chemotherapy. Underneath on the bottom uh, of the slide, I didn't know your politics in Yeshiva University, so I was very careful here. But the, on the left-hand side is the person that was my mentor, uh, Bob Langer. And uh, uh, Bob is uh, an amazing entrepreneur. Uh, he, uh, 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 a chemical engineer, he's a member of also an entrepreneurial uh, expert. And, uh, and more specifically, he, uh, 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 Bob has more than 800 patents and more than 200 companies that he, uh, that he started. So I, I think being able to actually balance those two worlds uh, is extremely important. And when the, uh, when the, when the, uh, the uh, Harvard Business School saw this uh, story of such a phenomenal entrepreneur, they asked the question, you know, how can someone be so, so successful? And they wrote one of their uh, great case studies, uh, the Langer Lab, uh, Uh, 17, and, uh, and they actually looked at which concepts allow entrepreneurship inside a university, inside an academic uh, uh, environment. And, uh, and they found four different aspects. So the first is like a huge idea, uh, meaning that it, it needs to be something transformative. It has to be a seminal paper, meaning that it really moves the uh moves the, uh, the, the uh, uh moves us technologically forward it has to have a blocking patent of course uh, in order to protect it and also a proof of concept so that to make sure that the science is is robust i think behind all of these and if we're talking about a a, a a course that talks a lot about ethics one of the things i learned is uh, that uh, these projects this technological project take many, many years to uh, realize, especially when you invent a new medicine, 
it can be 10 or 15 years in the, uh, in the works. And for people, young people working in the field, I think the only real drive or real incentive we can have for staying for so long working on, on a single idea or single concept is belief. Ethics have many, many different uh, uh, aspects to them. But one of the main uh, uh, things that, that can drive people to come in to work for 10 years or 15 years until a medicine is approved, sometimes even longer, is, under, is actually appreciating that this will make a big change to the world and uh, uh, being willing to, uh, to do that. So I'll give, in the interest of time, I'll give just two quick examples, if that's uh, okay. Israel, how are we on time? Uh, I don't have a clock in front of me. You have plenty of time. Okay, great. So I'll, I'll just give two. Of, uh, uh, of nanotechnology and, uh, and treating a joint uh, disease. The joints uh, such as uh, our knees, our uh, hips, but mainly, mainly knees. So uh, some of you may actually be, oh, I assume you can uh, understand the Hebrew, but um, so for those who, who uh, don't recognize it, so this, this is a healthy joint. And on the right-hand side, actually is a joint that has osteoarthritis, degradation of the joint. Can you What we did is we invented nanoparticles actually that are injected directly into the joint of patients and reduce friction and wear for treating osteoarthritis. Um, and when you, when you develop a new medicine uh, in, in the lab, of course, you need to go for a big problem. So uh, what we did is we took a very simple concept asking ourselves, can nanotechnology uh, not be used only as a carrier for medicines, as I showed you in the first slide with the cancer patients, could we apply it in a totally different uh, area uh, for treating, uh, for treating uh, patients that have degradation of their, of their cartilage? And the nanoparticles here are actually the medicine itself. Instead of being a nanoparticle that carries a medicine inside of it, the nanoparticle here is, uh, is actually the medicine itself. It lubricates the surface of the, of the cartilage. And... Uh, 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 thank God, you know, we were able to actually improve the quality of life of patients. So we followed patients uh, uh, for a, over a period of more than uh, uh, initially 30 days and for 90 days. And we saw that compared to the control groups, uh, which were treated with uh, uh, the best uh, existing I think... Uh, after really many years of work, getting these results back and seeing that you changed uh, people's lives made a, made a huge impact on me and actually uh, uh, made me a, a, a decide you know, to stay in this field of therapeutics, even though it's very, uh, it, it's very long and uh, tiresome, I would say. Um, more than that, when we looked at these patients, we saw that uh, not only were they able to climb uh, up and down stairs, uh, get in and out of a chair, uh, improve their daily activity, they were also, these patients actually uh, were consuming less, less pain. And we were pretty fortunate. We sold this company 
uh, in, in a great partnership deal between us and Sun Pharma, which is one of the uh, largest uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, in the world. And, and uh, we actually uh, just completed a large clinical trial in the US, a second one uh, in the US, in Denmark, in, in Singapore, in order to uh, hopefully uh, approve, this, uh, approve this drug. So I think sometimes we were working on Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, questions come up, uh, could we take such a technology and, and further improve it, make it even better, make it perfect. And, uh, and here, the, the, the idea behind it would have been instead of just injecting an empty nanoparticle, which can reduce the friction and wear inside a joint, could we actually also add a medicine that would further improve the joint? And luckily, we didn't do it at the time because the regulatory bodies even the concept of injecting uh, particles into a joint was a new concept at the time. And adding another medicine would have probably stopped our, uh, our, uh, uh, our work at all. And, and I'll just say, you know, working in this field, uh, 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 the number of ethical questions that come up uh, uh, are enormous and they just uh, grow in time. And I think really keeping your uh, focus on what's uh, on what's right is, is very important. You know, many times patients come ask, you know, can you get me some of that medicine? Um, and and there, the, we have to work always through, the, through, the, uh, through the, the systems in order to make sure that all patients get the same treatment exactly and not, not one gets a, uh, something just based on personal knowledge or, or something like that. So that's it, one, one concept. And the second really is, I think the feeling rewarded when you, when you actually see that a technology that uh, we, we were able to invent helps uh, people. Here, uh, uh, and uh, actually uh, uh, a story that started between us in Israel and, uh, and a group in the University of Utah, Josh, Dr. Joshua Schiffman. He's a pediatric oncologist in the University of Utah, and uh, he actually grew up uh, uh, on the East Coast and then uh, it's don't get cancer. Pretty amazing. Um, if you think of it, uh, an animal that's a hundred times greater in size than we are and lives about seventy or eighty years. Um, how can such animals be protected from cancer? Uh, something that uh, something that we uh, uh, something that we many times uh, uh, may not be able to design ourselves. And when we look in nature, actually, have cancer uh, at all, or almost very very rarely. Um, if they have 100 times more body weight, they also have about 100 times more cells. So statistically, they should be dropping down from a cancer uh, right and left. And, and it, they don't. And that means they have a protective mechanism. This is Dr. Joshua Schiffman on the right-hand side, myself on the left-hand side. But an elephant that's 60 years old, the female elephant that's held in captivity. And because she's held in captivity, actually, they take a blood sample from her, from one of her veins. Uh, once a week, and, and we were able to ask for one of the, these blood uh, samples and study what differs between elephants and humans in uh, cancer, uh, in cancer uh, mechanism. And what we found 
is actually that there's one gene that differs greatly between humans and elephants, and this can be leveraged for developing a totally new uh, uh, cancer uh, approach, cancer treatment approach. So it, it resides around a gene called P53, and our students here are looking, and they actually, um, they recognize this, uh, this gene, they've learned about it. P53 is the guardian of the genome, and uh, uh, that's what it's called. As we age, actually, the, uh, the, the quality of P53 in our cells deteriorates. And maybe to emphasize how important this gene is for protecting us from cancer are two, uh, two facts. So one is that 50% of cancer cells or 50% of the cancer types we have in, in, uh, among humans lack P53, meaning that the cancer cell was able to kick out P53 or deactivate it. The second, uh, is that if we mention that uh, healthy adults have two copies of P53, there are children that are born with uh, a syndrome called leaf arm. Thinking that one ex extra copy is is there is uh, is important for uh, uh, for protecting ourselves. When we look at elephants, if we have two copies of P53, elephants actually have. 40 copies of P53 in each one of their cells. The first two copies are identical between the humans and the elephants. And the other 38, each one here is a pair. The other 38 are small alterations between the humans and the elephants. Into a human... and protecting ourselves from uh, getting cancer. And uh, so we did what we know how to do. We took a nanoparticle on the left-hand side is a, is a drawing of a nanoparticle. Its size is again about one one thousandth, the width of a hair on our head. Uh, and we loaded it with a gene of P53. And then we looked at what it does to cancer cells. And we saw on the left-hand side are cancer cells, osteosarcoma, this is a bone cancer. On the right-hand side is the same cells after adding the P53 gene to them these cells become round and actually die away. The same happens also when we do, uh, we uh, do the same to prostate cancer. And, uh, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and uh, also when we go on, we tested this also in pancreatic cancer. If you look on the right-hand side, explodes after adding the uh, P53. So I'll just end by saying that uh, uh, when we, uh, I think, our motivation is the patients. And uh, when we come to, uh, to develop new technologies, our motivation is, uh, uh, is, is patients and not uh, anything else because those would be, I think, uh, far from us. I just wanna say hi from uh, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and I think the, the second thing is really partnerships between schools in the United States and schools uh, in Israel, uh, Technion being one of them, uh, I think it can really, uh, I think the entrepreneurship on both sides of the ocean, the innovation uh, really requires people working together. So thank you so much for giving us the, the stand there today. Thank you very much, Dr. Schroeder for your fascinating presentation. My name is Khan Kazlo, and I'm also a board member of the YU Medical Ethics Society.
Our next speaker is Dr. Jonathan Rosenblum. I would love to speak about all of the amazing things Dr. Rosenblum has accomplished and achieved over the years, but my superiors instructed me to keep the introduction brief. Dr. Rosenblum is a podiatric surgeon and scientist who studied at the New York College of Podiatric Medicine, went on to found and become the director of the Diabetic Foot Service and Chariotetic Medical Center in Jerusalem, and opened the Israel Amputation Prevention Center, where he practices his subspecialty, diabetic limb salvage. In 2019, Dr. Rosenblum co-founded Rhythm Life Sciences, a medical technology company focused on the development of CBR devices and currently serves as CEO. Thank you very much, Dr. Rosenblum, for everything you have done and continue to do. Without further ado, Dr. Rosenblum. Good morning, everyone. Let me share my screen here. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, most of it is true. I'm certainly not as important or good as it sounds, but I do appreciate it. Um, I'm honored to be able to present um, my company um, that I'm with now called Rhythm Life Sciences. Um, just to get a little introduction, we are a technology company. Um, we'll get to how we were formed and why we were formed after, but the technology company that is addressing resuscitative medicine and problems and things that are lacking in emergency medicine. Um, the company was founded in 2019. My co-founder, um, Yehuda Roseman, was taking a EMT course. And I'd like to say that the company is really mission-based. He was taking the EMT course because one of his business partners had lost a child um, because there was no defibrillator around. And in the first class of the EMT course, they were taking a CPR class. And the instructor said to them that CPR is well, well and good, but without a defibrillator nearby, um, the chances are close to zero of a positive resuscitation of saving the life. Um, he then, they start, started searching for the defibrillator in the shul hall. There was a sign that there was a defibrillator. The defibrillator ended up being locked up in the rabbi's office in a safe. He felt that this was a little bit ridiculous in this day and age where everybody's carrying a very powerful computer in their pockets, i.e. their cell phone. And he came to me because I've been involved in, in different medical devices for about 20 years and said he'd like to build a cell phone-sized defibrillator. Um, I immediately left him off because that's, in my opinion, was relatively impossible. But after thinking about it, we decided that why not? We can, if we take certain things out of the traditional defibrillators and move them into the cell phone, we would be able to shrink the size down. Um, our first product, which came about, the, the idea for it came about later. We launched in November 2021. I'll actually just show you. This is it. It's a little CPR puck. Um, we'll discuss it a little more further on. And our second product, which is our defibrillator, which is just this size, as you can see, in a little waterproof box, we're expecting to launch at the end of this year or the beginning of next year. Okay. So why are we looking to get into rhythm? And like I told you the story, Jolts is a very personal and mission-oriented company. Um, the J and the Z that we put in Jolts, which is the name of our defibrillator, are actually the initials of the young person who was Nifter and was the cause of all of this getting started. 
Um, if we talk about, you know, the previous lecturer um, whose products I do know um, and have very good things to say about them, um, but he talked about, you know, you always want to do something good and you want to do something important and good for mankind. And of course, if you can save one life, it's as if you're saving the world. And that's why when we're addressing resuscitative medicine, we're literally talking about life-saving. Um, some of the statistics that are just very important to know about, there, there are over 600,000 sudden cardiac arrests um, that occur in the U.S. every year outside of the hospital. They're out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. It, for every minute of delay between the cardiac arrest and when the first defibrillation is given, there's a 10% increase in mortality. That means that at one minute after a cardiac arrest, if you get a defibrillator there, there'll be a 90% chance of saving, as opposed to if you wait five minutes, there's only a 50% chance of saving. So the company, the company mission is to make the defibrillator ubiquitous. And we've teamed up with the American Heart Association. We're a member of their Center for Health Technology and Innovation. And they've identified three major things that start that are keeping people from owning a personal defibrillator. The first is cost. The second is a fear factor. And the third is the size. Um, even in the general public, people are ashamed to show that they're weak or that they're sick. People are ashamed of, you know, if we put it in Jewish terms a little bit, of an ayin hara, um, and they're afraid to keep it out. So as when we were designing the product, and when I talk about in, in some of my other classes, talking to people who are going into bio, biomedical and biotech, um, you have to find the problem and address it. So we took the three, the three problems that are preventing defibrillator becoming ubiquitous, and we addressed each. The first thing we did is we shrunk down the size, and I'll show you pictures a little later of, of what ours looks like as compared to the ones you've seen, I'm sure, on campus, and anyone who volunteers in Hatsala or elsewhere, you know, the life packs that are the huge bricks. So we've addressed the size. We've addressed the cost. Um, we've set a price limit for what we're looking, for what we're willing to come out to the market with. Um, that's between a half and a third of the other defibrillators on the market. And as far as a fear factor, we've made the defibrillator absolutely idiot proof um, so that even I can use it. And it's, it's got coaching built in both audio and video, which is, which is unique to that. Hey, we, we also, on the way we developed, and that's why I said the first product, this rescuer was launched first. Um, but on the way to, de to developing the defibrillator, we realized that we need to also try and get the other parts of basic life support better. Um, there were some scary statistics that came out both in the US and in Europe that even people who took a CPR class up to 90% responded that even though they knew this stuff, if they, if they passed someone on the street who required CPR, they wouldn't do it. Um, we did a little bit of a marketing study and it showed that people who own not even if they carry it on their person, but people who own a device that would be related to CPR, that the numbers would go down to about 50% would then be willing. And if they're carrying something on their, on their person, um, in their backpack or in their pocket or wherever it is, 
they would up to 90% would then do CPR if they came across someone. Um, so we decided to design something to help increase CPR performance and to make it much easier and a lot more intuitive. And we'll discuss that also. Um, how do we get to a product? Right. So the first thing is obviously there's an idea. And if we're, if we're thinking about this as new entrepreneurs or new people who are entering the medical device, you should dream. And I honestly believe this. Anything you think of can be done. And there, there really are no steps that can't be overcome. And if not now, then you should be able to plan out what's going to be because technology is, is increasing at such a rapid pace that while today you might not be able to do it, tomorrow the next step should be there. And then obviously identify a problem or a need or something missing. In our case, we, we, we realized that, you know, the ability to save lives by performing proper CPR and getting defibrillation there in a, in a much quicker time was missing. And we attacked all the things that were getting there. And we are trying, the, the goal is obviously not just to have public access defibrillation, but also to have at-home defibrillation. And the most important thing that I, I say to people who I coach um, when they're developing their companies or, or they're asking me about what to do is one step at a time. There's no way to run to the end. I've been involved in medical devices now for over 20 years. I started off doing medical research on wound care. Um, it expanded into other things. I then developed medical protocols. I then started to delve into a little bit on the, on the, on the business side, building business protocols and business development. But the most important thing is to go one step at a time. So if I were to tell you the steps of how we did it, um, Basically, it works like this. Over the last 20 years, I've been involved in seven or eight startups. One or two of them have been successful, but the majority of them were not. And, and the statistics are, that's about right. Three quarters are unfortunately not successful. Um, but you can learn a lot more from things that are going difficult than from things that go easy. So I took the lessons of many of the things that I learned from the successful cases and even more of the lessons that I learned from the less successful cases. And when I was asked to stay on as CEO and not just to be the consultant, I told the rest of the board that the only way I'll accept that is if we actually do this in a stepwise manner. So our stepwise manner started like this. We evaluated the regulatory um, landscape. We looked at what we were going to need for the FDA what we were going to need for the CE and other countries and to decide if this was something that would be feasible. While at the same time, we were looking at the, at the, at the marketplace to see if this was something that could be commercially feasible. After both of those were, were you know, found to be acceptable and that we could move on, we began to put the team in place. The first piece that, that I put in place, since I have no knowledge of engineering, um, I, I'm a wonderful podiatrist. I, will pat myself on the back and, you know, take away a little bit of the anava. I apologize. But um, I definitely do not know anything about electricity or electrical engineering or mechanical engineering for that matter. So the first thing that we did was find an electrical engineer. And we were lucky enough to find someone who had 15 years of experience in defibrillation from one of the other large companies. And we added him to the team. 
From there, we added our R&D house. And from there, it expanded horizontally and laterally. We were able to add an operations officer and our sales and marketing team. And our board grew where we took, and this was one of, one of the most important things that we got. The, the person who's now chairman of the board, um, we, we made it a list of slots of markets that we were looking to penetrate. And we took advice by adding one person to the board from each of those. So we took someone from emergency medicine and out of hospital medical care. We took someone from the military and we took someone from ambulance corps. We, we have people from United Hatsala and we were able to grow from there. This is a picture of our defibrillator. Um, it's currently undergoing testing for EFDA. Um, the device is about the size of a paperback book. Um, I can show you again from this model of it that it fits in the palm of my hand. Um, it weighs less than two pounds. It's waterproof. It floats. So it will be the only defibrillator that will be marine graded. We over-engineered it. You can see the ruggedness of it. It is built up to, mil to military spec. Um, we put the features inside where it's just basically easy. You open it up, it automatically turns on and will begin to give you voice prompts as to what to do. The electrodes come already plugged in so that, so that you can um, have one step less to do that. In addition to which, I started off by telling you that Rhythm is a technology company and we using our technology to address the problem. We combine this with a cell phone app. The cell phone app right now has the ability, if you pair it, the, when you open the defibrillator, it will activate your cell phone app automatically and call 911 or Hatsala or whatever number you've programmed in automatically. It will send them your GPS so that they know where to come. And depending on the emergency medical system, it will also be able to send them the telemetry, the EKG tracings, so that they can do that. One of the ways that we were able to, to minimize the size is we took the screen out and we use the cell phone screen. Most people who were using a defibrillator, and this was how we addressed some of the, the fear factor. Seeing an EKG or God forbid, seeing a flat line or VFib, the funny squiggly lines that will scare people um, will induce fear in someone who's trying to do defibrillation. And so by taking it off, there's no screen here. So there's nothing to get in the way of that. So a calm, gentle voice will be telling you to, you know, hit the orange shock button. For those who feel that they can and need, and need to see the, the, the EKG waves, they'll be able to see it on their cell phone. They'll also be able to get coaching and video coaching on the cell phone. This is our rescuer. Um, when we were addressing, like I said at the beginning, you know, when you when you have a, a an idea to try and and address something that's missing or something that's there, we started to evaluate all the things that make it difficult to do CPR or why people wouldn't, um, and we wanted to make sure that we got that we got better compressions. We wanted to make sure that we got better compressions and that we had fewer CPR complications. Okay. 
So again, this is our device. Um, as I hold it close, you can see X marks the spot. So even someone who hasn't learned CPR can know where to put it exactly. The back over here has a non-slip surface. So once it's on, it's not going anywhere. Um, you can see in the picture here on the right, it, the hands are forced into a proper position. This is very important. The, the, there are three different parts to, to getting good compressions. Number one is the rate. Number two is where the hands are placed. And number two is how the, at the depth. So the, we figured out with the geometry that if you get the rate correctly, so this has two metronomes built into it. Um, so the rate will be good if you're, be, if you're, if you're doing compressions just to the beat and you have your arms in the right position, then you'll get the proper depth. And that'll allow when you do the proper depth, when you go down, blood is being pushed out of the heart. And when you release, blood is being allowed into the heart. So by doing it like that, you can get it like that. And on the picture on the left, you can actually see that we have two fingers, a little hole for two fingers, which is how infant CPR, God forbid, is supposed to be done. But again, it's the same position. Now, some of the other things that are, are reasons people don't do CPR is a lot of broken ribs and some sternal fractures. Um, and the phrase that we've coined for this is less crunch when you punch. Um, the way that this is shaped and the way that it sits on the sternum, it, it, um, it disperses the force across the sternum and across the ribs in a, in a lot, in a better manner, which causes fewer fractures, both in the ribs and both as the ribs attached to the sternum. Another problem that we addressed, the American Heart Association published a paper about 20 years ago and then republished it again in a new study this past year that when a sudden cardiac arrest happened in the field, if it happened to a woman, CPR was started on them 30% slower than it was done on men. Um, and this is not just a Jewish thing, but, but SNEAS really did play a big role in this. Um, actually, about two months ago, there was a, a case in, I believe it was South Dakota, where two EMTs started CPR on a woman in public and they had left her top un undressed and she sued them and sued successfully um, for embarrassing her by leaving her undressed in public. So to address this need of the AHA, we actually added this privacy sheet in so that as soon as you pop off the back and you activate the metronome, the privacy sheet will be can be quickly put over so there's no problem and no delay in getting CPR started. Um, again, like we said, there's proper placement, which causes all of the advantages to come together because you're getting proper placement and proper rate. Okay, before we just move on to what I think are some keys to a successful business and maybe some ethics involved, um, I should say that, that some of the, the technological advantages that we're doing with with the defibrillator in particular is we, we just came back last week from the FDIC, which is the fire department um, instructional course in Indianapolis, which is combined also with, with an EMT course um, where there were over 5,000 people. Um, one of the things that we've done is, is we've attached our device to a drone. 
Um, there's a company out in, in California that did a, a pilot study in one city in California, one town in California, where EMS was very far away. They weren't able to get there. And what they do is they nest drones in trees and in light posts around, around the county. And when, an EM, when there's an EMS call or a fire call, they activate the drones. So currently what they're doing is, is that they only activate the drones to come in and provide some aerial support to help guide the, the ambulance or the fire truck to the scene of the, of the incident. But we've now added our, dro our defibrillators to that where they're going to be able to bring defibrillators. And because ours are, are spec'd out to military spec, they'll be able to drop them in. Um, we're also doing that now across Canada. Um, there's a company that does that there. And we've, we've joined with them to do a pilot study of getting drones out there quickly. So what I feel are keys to getting a good biotech company up running is number one, you got to enjoy what you're doing. And it really is not just a cliche. If you hate what you're doing, you're going to hate it and you're not going to want to make it successful and it won't be successful. Number two is to surround yourself with the best people. Um, we had a policy when we started the company from day one is that we only wanted to hire people or to bring in even investors who are people that we want to deal with. People who are going to annoy you, people who are going to upset you are going to make it very difficult for you to work and to be successful, and you're just not going to enjoy it. Next one, and I, and I can't stress this enough, is to follow a step-by-step -step outline. You know, ABCs are really ABCs. You can't skip a step. You can't run 10 things in parallel. You have to make sure that you, you know where you're going. And, you know, a business plan is there for a reason. Um, it's meant to be followed. It's not, you know, rules are not meant to be broken. They're not even in this case meant to be bent. You really should try and stick to it. And if you get from step to step, you'll get to the end and you'll, you'll be successful. You should have a clear plan and an outlook. And, and those are two different things. A plan is, is an active thing. And an outlook is a theoretical thing. You have to know where you want to be. You have to know what you want to do. You have to have your goals set and clear. And then you have to be able to implement. Okay? And you need to get that implementation in place and follow along and to start it. Okay? Life is going to be rough and there are going to be complications. Um, we started this company just before COVID. And I, I have to say that for the most part, until recently, we've been very lucky that COVID did not affect us. Um, we are now, unfortunately, starting to feel the effects of it with the supply chain issues and with people being out. Our rescuer device, for instance, is made near Shenzhen, which was closed for about a month, a month or so ago. So we're dealing with that. You should always try and do something meaningful. That shouldn't be, I mean, it, it should be ethically where we all start, but you should always have, at the end of the day, you should really always try and say, you know, have I done something good and never give up. Even when things are, are tough and, and you're having a bad day or, you know, the FDA came back with a list of questions that you can't believe they did or they don't understand something, you know, push through. There, there is a way through it. There is a way at it. Um, you should be able to do it. And good luck to all of you. Thank you to Israel for inviting me to do that. Thank you to Stephanie for recommending me to do this. And good luck to all of you.
Thank you very much, Dr. Rosenblum, for your informing presentation. My name is Esther Miller, and I'm a board member of the Medical Ethics Society. And I am pleased to have the honor to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Herman Weiss. Dr. Weiss received his MD at the Ohio State University College of Medicine, followed by residency in OB at Einstein College of Medicine. He also received, received his MBA from the George Washington University School of Business. Dr. Weiss has founded and held leadership positions at companies such as Probation Life, Juniper Pharmaceuticals, Teva, and Todos Medical. In addition, Dr. Weiss co-founded the Master's Program of Business and Management of Biotechnology at the Yeshiva University Katz School of Science. Dr. Weiss currently serves as the CEO of Libra Sciences. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Weiss. I'm privileged to present Dr. Weiss. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate the, uh, all the effort um, that's gone into putting this uh, conference together. I'm very pleased that it's Zoom because that allows uh, a broader reach and it allows a broader, uh, uh, you know, uh, ability to, to to hear more, you know, fascinating uh, presentations. And uh, I can work it into my very, very busy schedule. Um, so uh, kudos to the organizers. Um, and, uh, and you know, this conference is a conference that I've been, you know, following for years. Uh, I think, I don't know what year you're up to, but it seems like it's been going on for, for a long, long time. And every, every year, it, it just gets more interesting. And, and so when they were asking me to present, I, I was honored, uh, embarrassed. Um, I've been a longtime fan, um, uh, always eager to listen to the podcast if I can't show up in person. Uh, when they come out on YU, uh, usually they come out on YU Torah um, as they become available. Um, they're always timely topics. They're always very interesting and they're always very, very relevant, which, which begs the question, what am I doing here? <laughs> um, uh, we got a good laugh uh, looking at the pictures of these really esteemed presenters and then, uh, and then myself as, you know, batting cleanup, so to speak, which is <laughs> certainly not the case. Um, as usual, it is a very impressive lineup, um, and so uh, perhaps a few moments uh, of uh, of my history to to you know to understand where I'm coming from, um, because my talk and my company's is neither is not to say that it's not ethical. My talk is not ethical and it's not legal minded, but uh, but uh, fortunately, Israel told me that that doesn't matter. Uh, they just want to hear about biotech in Israel, um, and I can go on and on uh, about. Uh, the robust, the robust uh, biotech culture here in Israel, because it's it's really mind blowing what's going on. I could listen to Avi Ishroda present for hours, and every time I do listen to him, uh, I invariably think of another potential startup. I think of another idea, another solution, another, another problem. Uh, all these ideas that percolate in his mind and in, in others' minds, and they always rise to the top. And how how are we gonna um, how are we gonna study that? How are we gonna test that? How are we gonna bring that to to uh, to patients? So I just want to echo his 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 closing thoughts. Um, we and and um, I actually am part of the, the YU uh, faculty. Um, I I just want to impress upon the students that are listening or that may listen to this. Um, any university settings, and especially ours, and, and as we're we're you know transitioning to to build our uh, Israel branch here. Um, in terms of the academics, we're eager to, to entertain students and the students' ideas, anything that percolates um, and aligns with our technologies and our, our current uh, approaches, and we, we want to collaborate. And I also want to echo what Dr. Rosenblum has said. If you can dream it, just dream it. If you can think of it, just think of it. It can be done. Um, and approach a faculty and don't take no for an answer. Um, and, so, uh, and so it's very important, you know, sitting here in Israel, 
um, you know, how I got here and how I uh, came to um, the position that I'm in. I couldn't have scripted this uh, at all. I went to, like I mentioned, I went to Ohio State Medical School, I went to Einstein Residency for OBGYN, bread and butter, OBGYN residency, did an MBA. And, um, and then in 2008, we moved to Israel for various reasons. Um, and uh, and uh, I started knocking on doors. I got introduced to the biotech, cent- uh, um, biotech uh, you know, flora here, the, the robust uh, microbiome, I should say, uh, in this country for, for biotechnology. And uh, I, I knock on a, a door and they, 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 they said, well, we have an OBGYN concept that we're trying, we're milling about. So I helped co-found that company and I was a chief medical officer for some time for a couple of years. And then I moved over to Teva where I learned pharmaceutical development. Uh, then I worked in a company in Boston for a year and a half, came back and was head of a, a company in, in, um, in the diagnostic space. But you're always expanding. You're always seeing. You're always being, you know, engulfed with with, with additional ideas um, and different concepts. And you're always you always have an eager ear in any one of the, you know, I've I've been in touch with people at Weitzman. I've been in touch with Avi in, in Technion and Hebrew U. And you always have uh, other, uh, you know, a- opportunities where people are just eager to learn, eager to help, e- eager eager to push the envelope as as uh, as it goes. So. Um, so I, you know, I've been here, like I said, since 2008 with my wife and, and, and family and, uh, you know, many different ideas percolate. And, you know, I met somebody back in, in Boston when I was there in 2015. They approached me to head, head this company, uh, which I'm about to present to you um, in, in a specific area that has a robust uh, infrastructure here in Israel. And um, and so, you know, and that's what I've been working at uh uh, developing and bringing on the pharmaceutical grade. And, and what Jonathan was just speaking about is really on, a, on the uh, medical device pathway is one pathway and the pharmaceutical pathway is very clear and, and very distinct. Um, and then, so, so again, I, I was talking to Israel about putting together the lineup and trying to figure out who, who could contribute and, and who would be a, a good contributor. Um, and then uh, recently I saw the conference announcement and I saw who the sponsors are and in whose name this this um, conference was being given over. And, you know, I looked around, and I saw that Rev. Ramon and Rev. Berman and Rev. Ganak and the other esteemed presenters were were, were uh, on the lineup. Um, but I just wanted to share a quick uh, minute uh, about why I felt, you know, emotionally gravitated towards this uh, presentation. So this, this coming era of Shavuos is actually the 22nd year anniversary of my son Noach's bris, which I performed as the Moel, having successfully learned from uh, other uh, uh, esteemed presenters in the past, like Zalman Levine was my teacher, um, and I performed the the bris in with Rev Tenler watching over my shoulder um, in his watchful eye in community synagogue in Muncie, uh, where my in-laws and I were longtime congregants, and as we convened in the uh, social hall downstairs for the bagels and locks. Um, and I remember, I can clearly recall uh, the message that Rev Tendler gave over that morning. Uh, he spoke of seeing me and standing next to me as I performed the bris as a clear demonstration of Torah Mata. He said that this was, you know, being able to combine your, your secular and your Torah education together to really, uh, you know, blossom. Um, and he watched me grow as a, as a, as a young adult, as to a, a young married, to, to bring in a, a family and a successful doctor and, and hopefully staying in the, in the Torah, Torah ways. 
Uh, and this successful combination of this Torah knowledge and secular knowledge is really creating this new singular entity, the Torah Mata, which was he, you know, he was so proud and he he was so successful at. And so I've always been grateful to Rick Tendler uh, for his continuous guidance over the years and, and, and decades, his words of encouragement, as well as the support and, and, and strength that my family has always received from um, and still does receive from Community Synagogue of Muncie. So it was really a... Um, you know, a culmination of a lot of things. When I saw that they were supporting uh, this worthwhile uh, conference, um, I, I was, you know, more than happy to um, to do what I can to make it a, a success. So, so again, I know that was a long-winded um, introduction, but Israel texted me earlier that I can have more time. Um, but now to get on to the uh, to the presentation, what what actually brings me here and what was actually you know gets me up early in the morning and keeps me up late at night. Is is bringing you know these companies along and and as as uh, John so so successfully and eruditely uh, that's even a word um, described. If you have a template and you have milestones and you have to hit each milestone, you can't skip any, and you have to hit you know one after the other after the other, and it's even more um, pronounced in the pharmaceutical world of development where you have to hit your preclinicals, your safeties, your animal models your phase ones, your phase twos, your phase threes, and then, uh, you know, always keeping your eye on the goal, uh, on the goal line. That takes a lot of money to, to develop and it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of, uh, uh, you know, and a lot of luck. So, um, so let me share my screen and uh, I will get on with my presentation. Um, one second. Okay. All right. Can everybody see my screen? Yep, we see it. Thank you. All right, one second. All right, so um, let me just present into the presentation mode. All right, so the microbiome. Um, basically, we have a platform uh, that we're pushing forward, um, and we are utilizing the patient's uh, microbiome, which I'll talk about uh, momentarily. And we are uh, identifying potential uh, targets uh, of which we've already presented um, three for development. And um, one second, and uh, and we have uh, various forms of um, uh, potential targets uh, available. Um, so we have one platform where we're developing a macromolecule that is actually leaching out the toxic metabolites that the uh, microbiome produces that has that has potential downstream effects that causes disease in the host. Uh, we leach them out via the macromolecules. These macromolecules, uh, in a nutshell, are, are exquisitely safe because they don't get absorbed. They don't call, cause toxic damage. Uh, the metabolites are leached out and, uh, and excreted out in, in the normal fashion. And in fact, after uh, a prolonged uh, treatment, the microbiome, again, shifts from the gut dis biosis to a, to a normal microbiome. Um, and so uh, we also have a robust supplement market, which we're developing um, for uh, approval uh, later on down, down the road, uh, more of a uh, non-traditional uh, alternative uh, approach to uh, metabolic diseases, in, including women's health and, uh, and general health. So that's more on the a secondary line, but, but right now I'll talk more about the, uh, about our, our, our first to market. Um, we're a small team. We're building our team, um, and uh, it's right now it's myself and uh, my financial uh, CFO, 
uh, Gary. Gary just joined the team, and we're still looking for others to build on with uh, additional expertise uh, across the industry. Um, one of the things that I did uh, when I started getting involved in this company was I made a very simple uh, Google alert with microbiome, um, and I started putting microbiome disease and microbiome. And uh, there is a an unbelievable amount of data and research that's um, you know that's been pub, you know into the public into the scientific uh, lexicon, and it's it's widely accepted that the next frontier in targeting multiple diseases anywhere from uh, Alzheimer's and dementia uh, to cancers and to immune system uh, uh, disorders um, is uh, is is looking at the microbiome as a mechanism to alter disease pathways. The, the, the challenge is is that it, it's a long process because when you have a, a gut dysbiosis, when the gut isn't working properly, um, it it forms these toxic metabolites. Toxic metabolites then get absorbed in certain levels. Um, because of that leaky gut, so to speak, and I'll describe that later. Um, and then that will actually cause downstream effects. And it's not, it's not like a, a, a rapidly evolving where you can, you know, one day have, be fine, next day have an infection or vice versa. You're not, you're not getting an infection. You, you may be ha- causing some downstream inflammatory effects. Uh, we found that, um, uh, that a gut, dis- gut dysbiosis, which is this, this imbalance of the gut microbiome, uh, is associated with even polycystic ovary disease, which is which is my pet project. Um, it's associated with uh, you know Alzheimer's, um, and the problem is that these diseases are so long to develop. You, you're not necessarily affecting the uh, immediate. You know, if you can have a surrogate end marker, then you can have more of a proof uh, when you're doing and designing your clinical trial. So that's why it's a little bit hard to uh, positively affect the. Um, uh, um, the downstream markers um, of disease. If we were to have some surrogate markers, we can get a, a, you know these drugs approved faster. But again, it's it's a little bit of a, a cat and mouse game with the FDA. They don't want to approve drugs that they don't know you know if there's downstream effects. The the beauty of our approach, and I'll describe this more in a few uh, in a few minutes, is that we actually um, we actually don't have uh, any uh, absorption. Of our of our molecule because it's a macromolecule, um, and we actually are leaching out these toxic metabolites, and we don't cause any damage locally or systemically. Okay, one second. Okay, so just to quickly give you our like investor deck, so to speak. So uh, I'd rather talk more about the science than than where we're at. But we've we've prog- uh, progressed uh, um, three projects through uh, you know two in discovery. One in uh, obesity, which we're actually uh, bringing that, uh, and I'll show you some data we have in animals. Um, just for those of you who don't know uh, about pharmaceutical development, you, you have to prove safety and, and efficacy to a certain degree with a- animal models. Um, and then you open an IND. To a certain degree, you have to do some pharmacodynamic studies, pharmacokinetic studies that are generally accepted. Uh, once you've gotten those you know, those boxes checked, you present to the uh, FDA, they approve you to open an investigational new drug, an IND. Once you get the IND approved, then you can go into the clinics, which is phase one, phase two, phase three. And then, you know, each one of those is, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the price keeps going up and up and up. And as you hit your milestones, then the value of your company continues to, to rise and you could raise more money to get to the next milestone. Um, that's biotech finance uh, 101, you know, and, and, uh, 
you know, you could take my course in YU, which is uh, the business of biotech. So uh, another one of my pet projects when I have free time. Um, another uh, another uh, project, CLS2, is, is in the cardiovascular space, and CLS3 is in the uh, uh, kidney disease space. Um, okay. Uh, and then, our, as I mentioned, our, our supplement program is actually approved for sale in Europe and it's doing very well there um, uh, for, for men, a non-hormonal therapy for women having undergoing menopause. Uh, and we're getting it, we're registering it and ready for sale in 2023 in the U.S. Um, again, it's, it's a plant-based um, mechanistic uh, approach uh, that is non-hormonal and uh, stay tuned for more information on that. Uh, quick two minutes on the microbiome. We are covered in back... <laughs> I know it's hard to say this now with, uh, with regards to what we went through in the last two years, but we have bacteria all over us. Um, I'd be interested to see if all these hand washing actually caused damage down the road, again, downstream effects because of, of these protective bacteria that we are now taking off our body, but we're protected in our mucosal layers, the gut, the vagina, the mouth, all is covered in, in, in protective healthy bacteria that maintains a healthy, um, uh, you know, basement membrane, so to speak, with, with your mucosal layer. Um, where does this bacteria come from? We get it via when, we, when we're born. You have genetic predispositions to certain types of bacteria, um, hygiene. Um, you know, we talk about why some, some the, the level of peanut allergy is so low in Israel is because we let our kids play in dirt all the time. Um, and, and so they are exposed to the allergen at a younger age. They're exposed to bacteria at a younger age. So they, they have this, this robust, um, healthy microbiome. Um, diet is a huge player in the microbiome, uh, as well as uh, you know, antibiotic use or other drug use that can alter the, antib- uh, the microbiome. Um, and, and so an altered uh, microbiome actually leads to different uh, uh, diseases down the road. Um, and, so, and so we have, as you progress through life, we have a, a different set of, uh, of, a, of a, well, as we say, an immature to a more mature um, uh, microbiome, a healthier or sometimes uh, the gut dysbiosis where it's, it's, it's unhealthy. Here's a, a, a slight um, description of the microbiome. Um, as you go from the, the top of your gut down to the bottom, you increase uh, exponential growth of the numbers of microbiome. And that's why, you know, despite all this talk about altering the microbiome, it's exquisitely difficult to do so because if you want to take something orally to get it to the gut is a long, is a long ride. And usually the, the medications or usually the, the, the bacteria that you're ingesting uh, become become um, deregulated or called destroyed or broken down by the by the gastric enzymes or other uh, uh, or other um, uh, enzymes that are in the stomach and the acid environment. So it's hard to get to get uh, if you ingest bacteria or whatnot that you want to alter. You know, you can say if, you, if I have an unhealthy bacteria in my colon, why don't I just ingest healthier bacteria? And sure enough, uh, it's very hard to ingest healthy bacteria to get it to your gut. So we talk about probiotics, prebiotics, symbiotics. Um, if you may uh, be aware, there is a, um, there's companies that have, that have put out fecal um, microbiome transplant called FMT, 
where uh, patients who suffer from uh, C. difficile, which is an overgrowth of a toxic bacteria that live in, in your gut, that if you, if you introduce uh, the healthy bacteria that can keep the toxic bacteria um, uh, in, 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 uh, in check, um, some are using uh, rectal suppositories as uh, introduction that bypasses the upper GI. Some are using, uh, uh, um, and, and those are all have been approved, and, uh, not approved, those all are in IND and those are all in the clinics, uh, but they haven't been approved for sale as of yet. Um, but it's a massive, a massive market. Um, so the, like I mentioned earlier, this dysbiosis is where you have this, the normal gut homeostasis is where the, the bacteria in your gut is producing this, mucous membrane and you have this functional uh you have this functional uh uh membrane which is actually preventing disease from from entering uh, and creating a good barrier uh when that breaks down with abnormal bacteria you actually have this defect and it can actually cause disease um so our approach is not to not to create a new bacteria not to ingest bacteria but to alter the toxic metabolites that are actually being ingested into the body, the pro-inflammatory, the, plo, the, the pro-degenerative, um, the pro-neoplastic. Uh, Every uh, one of these, we've actually identified 70 different um, potential targets that are produced in that are metabolites, um, small chain fatty acids that are the bad players, the butyrate, the acetate, um, the list goes on and on. And these actually are, are oversubscribed in patients. They're overproduced in patients with the unhealthy microbiome, and they actually have evidence of disease. Um, so what we've developed is a macromolecule that does not get absorbed, that has sticky ends, that's able to leach out the toxic metabolites. Um, and so really, the, uh, there are significant limitations, as I mentioned, to the current treatments. Um, we're going after these, this low-hanging fruit. Um, we're, we're We've seen uh, a lot of, uh, not necessarily our competitors, but a lot of our colleagues in similar approaches, not to say that they're using this macromolecule, but they're trying to alter the, um, the microbiome with different methods. So what we've done is that we've identified these, these toxic metabolites. We created a macromolecule. We've tested it in the lab, and I'll show you some data that we've tested uh, in um, uh, in animals in in a moment, as you see that there's there's a, a whole host of potential diseases that we've identified, um, and and now based on our macromolecule uh, you know process that we have patented, we're able to create this uh, leaching out uh, and successfully. I mean, the idea again is is that you're not going to be able to uh, prove your effect on Alzheimer's but you may be able to prove your effect on some of the surrogate markers. The market is incredible in terms of the, our first go-to-market um, product is in uh, the ob obesity space. Uh, there has been some good data on some recent um, entries into the uh, injectable market for obesity. Uh, some of the type 2 diabetes drugs um, are, are crossing the border into the obesity space and has some really good, um, really good data. Uh, but again, there are some side effects to everything. And, and you know, the, the piece of the pie is, is tremendous uh, as we see what obesity is doing, not only to, uh, to the U.S., but ex-U.S. as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a rampant, um, uh, you know, plague, although we can't really say that word anymore. Um, so what we did is we took, we identified a chemical, we'll call that chemical A right now um, for uh, privacy purposes. 
Um, there are studies that have shown that we didn't do, but if others have substantiated that the the that this chemical is higher in you know obese patients, and, and what where we saw was that they had a gut dysbiosis, they had uh, um, elevated levels of various um, various uh, uh, microbiome. Um, we introduced our macromolecule uh, into uh, a few groups of um, th- into three groups uh, of, of high fat diet mice. This is our animal model I spoke about earlier. Um, we gave them a high fat diet for the beginning for the first forty days, and then we gave them uh, we continued uh, one group on a high fat diet. Uh, we continued one group on a high fat diet and the macromolecule without the sticky ends, and then the third group was the macromolecule with the sticky ends. And within two weeks, they they formed a uh, a good separation, and there was a significant loss of weight um, on the treated group. Um, within two weeks, they showed a greater than 10% weight loss of the group that had the, uh, the, uh, the, that macromolecule uh, attached with the sticky ends. Um, and we also looked to see if there was any uh, systemic side effects. There was no liver uh, damage. There was no re- renal damage. Uh, we looked uh, at the mucosal and inflammatory markers, and there was no uh, change in the inf- uh, inflammatory markers as well. Um, we then, interesting enough, because we were not approaching this from altering the microbiome, we wanted to see what was happening to these patients, or to these to these animals after with their microbiome. And indeed, we showed that we were able to alter the microbiome, our desired effect, just by removing those toxic metabolites. So we were able to shift their microbiome from a toxic microbiome to a more healthier microbiome, which was really, really exciting news for us. Um, and so I want to talk about some of this. Uh, our metabolite B is in the other space. Um, and so in the cardiovascular and cholesterol. Um, and so we have other uh, products in our uh, pipeline. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we have 70 uh, potential targets. I didn't want to spend too much time. Um, uh, oh, my gosh. Can you only see my title screen the whole time? Okay, so um, that was, um, I'm just trying to see if I, uh, I don't know if anyone had any questions for me, but uh, but it just basically, in conclusion, we're taking a, um, we're, we're taking a different approach to altering the microbiome by um, by taking out the toxic metabolites. And what the body does in that sense is that it actually shifts the microbiome back to a, a healthier um, and then thereby effectively, hopefully, um, positively affecting the, uh, ultimately, the, the, the microbiome in a positive way. So I think I got my 30 minutes or my 25 minutes in, um, a little bit over time. Uh, happy to take any questions if there are any. I think Anne. Mm-hmm. 
Did I lose everybody? No, we hear you. I guess okay. we could just move on to the next one. She did chat us your questions. Yeah, and if you have a question for me, just send me the you can chat to me. Okay, so we'll move on. Thank you, Dr. Weiss. 